Professor Sullivan. Hello. To talk about Jane Addams and her text, Democracy and Social Ethics. Um, the only thing I'll say so far is that this is the first text that we've encountered. It was uh, published in 1902, but really is a product of the 19th century in so many ways. And it is the first text that we've encountered that really defends democracy as a concept. So it takes until late 19th century for us to marshal a really strong defense of democracy. Kind of interesting. So um, the first couple, the first chapter, is the introduction that I had you read is uh, Adams' statement of kind of how she imagines democracy. And then we move into a couple of kind of case studies about how democracy functions in various places, including philanthropic uh, effort, charitable efforts, she calls them, or poverty relief, families, and then finally in local politics. So I think we should just dive into the text. All right, sounds good. Well, the first quote is from page seven, and it says, we are learning that a standard of social ethics is not attained by traveling a sequestered byway, but by mixing on the thronged and common road where all must turn out for one another, and at least... The size of one another. See the and size. Then, yeah, at least Sorry. see. I was like something. Sorry, missing And word. at least see the size of one another's burdens. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Adam's quotes. I feel like I say it or think about it very regularly. I think that's, yeah. I'm, tell me tell me in what instances you might think about it. Um, <laughs> what instances <laughs> I might think about it? I guess I think about it when I find myself on the... Thronged, thronged and, common, and road. common road. And what does the thronged and common road mean to you? Well, I think it means to when me... When are you on that thronged and common road? I feel like pretty regularly in the city of Syracuse, I'm on that thronged, thronged and, and common, common road, road mm -hmm. in a variety of different things I engage in in, in the queues. Um, mm -hmm. Partly because the Syracuse is diverse mm -hmm. and racially, ethnically. Culturally. Culturally. Um, religiously religiously is very diverse place and um, also because it's very poor and you and I are college professors at a liberal arts college so we do just fine um, mm -hmm. in terms of the monies which is not true of many of our neighbors mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. we see on the literally on the road right. and common road um not yeah. so thronged, but I think it's just because we're pretty car centric. I think if that's we weren't true, so car centric, it would be pretty thronged. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, also now COVID, but COVID also dethroned. Because I feel like usually Syracuse in the summer, people are out. Yeah. Like people are out. Yeah. On porches and streets and sidewalks and. Yeah. That was sort of true this summer, but I feel like mostly less fireworks. Less mostly fireworks. There's a lot of summer. fireworks. Mostly fireworks. <laughs> All right, so that, I think, helps us kind of situate a little bit about what Adams does mean in, in terms of democracy, and that when, so remember, this is the first kind of uh, defense of democracy that we've had thus far, and it's not an abstraction for Adams at all, right? Right. Like democracy, in Adams' view, is a very, what she's defending is, is less a system of government Right, this isn't anything about separation of powers or... This has nothing right. to do with rights. This has nothing to do with freedom. This has nothing to do with other kinds of political values that we traditionally, I think, or really any kind of large-scale political values at all that we think of as being kind of cornerstones of our political system. So she's really, when she's a democratic theorist and when she's talking about democracy and defending democracy, it's not as a set of abstract ideas, but as a set of like, really personal principles by which practices, one lives and practices maybe, yeah. by which one lives. And I think that's relevant for us to, th I think it's important for us to think about and just kind of helps us understand what, what a long road that it was, that it was actual effort to transform uh, that, to, to transform the concept of democracy into a set of like, large-scale abstractions and ideas, right? That, like, mm -hmm. our first defenders are really defending a way of life in mm -hmm. a very kind of concrete way, in the American tradition, anyway. Right, yeah, that's not necessarily true. Well, this is the American tradition, remember? Okay, should I keep going? 
Sure, sure. I mean, we. I mean, it's just a beautiful. Quote. I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah, I like it also when thinking about do-goodery. Oh well, you're gonna love you're gonna love some of this other stuff too. All right, page nine. We can only discover truth by a rational and democratic interest in life. And to give truth complete social expression is the endeavor upon which we are entering. Thus, the identification with the common lot, which is the essential idea of democracy, becomes the source and expression of social ethics. Okay. So, the essential piece of that quote, what do you think it is? If we're thinking about democracy. Um, well... I think that it's the common lot. Identification. Identification with the common lot. She says that's the essence of democracy. Yeah, because I think that the previous sentence, that we can only discover truth by a rational and democratic interest, if we take democratic interest to be partly about this thronged and common road, the identification with the common lot, then what she is saying even there is that truth is not just about rationality, but also about like positionality yeah where you are and whom you but you should also have a democratic interest in i think thinking outside of your self yeah that a demo that democratic that uh, that to be committed to democracy is to identify with the common lot right right and so and so in other, like i mean we're going to get there in just a minute but well, part of what this is getting at is the idea that, you know, you can't really, I mean, I hate to, tr I hate to like press this into cliches about leadership or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But where she's going with this is that like, you're never going to get democratic. In other words, you're not going to get democratic this is, I know we're going to get super abstract here. Sorry, everyone. But you don't get democratic outcomes by aggregating a whole bunch of preferences, right? It's not like you get democratic outcomes by, like, counting up all the votes from people in various segments of society and wherever the majority hits and lands, that's what's good and that's what's democratic. But rather, like, everyone has to identify with everyone else, right? right. So, like, it's not like, oh, we'll tally up the rich people's votes and the poor people's votes and see who's count more. It's like, no, everyone has to identify with everyone else yeah. for there to be an actual democratic outcome. You right. can't get it just by counting up a bunch of preferences. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that that sense of, like, again, going back to the common lot, but, like, the on the thronged and common road, we almost turn out for one another. I mean... Mm -hmm. Again, this isn't just like, okay, we counted and the poor wanted this, like, and there was more of them than the rich, and so then th that was fine. No, it's like you're supposed to turn out for one another, which seems to me that it would mean something very different than just, like, aggregation of preferences. Yeah, there's a kind of responsibility for one another mm -hmm. that's implied there, and ident I mean, that's also partly connoted with an identification with one another. It, it, she will expand on this in, in a couple of... Um, in a couple chapters later. So I feel like I feel like to get the mainsprings of her definition of democracy as we move now to looking at some examples, what we want to remember is that she's not thinking about electoral processes or even she's not thinking about kind of specific political institutions. What she's really thinking about is a kind of like structure of values. Mm -hmm. That is that is um, that is really the essence of democracy, and that, that 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 structure of values that she has in mind is really around this idea of identifying with the common lot, mm -hmm. of really imagining ourselves to be part of an organic whole, and that we are not ourselves without also, you know, being connected and related to others. And that we may not even necessarily know and see in our customary ways of, you know, going about the city. Mm -hmm. right. She's very much, um, the reason I said that she's a very 19th century thinker is that she's really, I think, captivated in a certain sense and, and uh, inspired by the novelty of the city. Uh-huh, interesting. Right? Like, this is really, like, 
it's like a you know she's moved to Chicago yeah. right and it's amazing right 19th century Chicago is incredible this teeming mass of people right, right? that is thus far in the American experience been a relatively limited right right our cities weren't all that big right. our cities weren't all that diverse and now in the 19th century they are right these massive explosively growing diverse places mm-hmm. okay so I think we got at least enough of the essence of democracy to move forward. All right. She starts out, next is about poverty relief, do-goodery, as you called it, charitable mm-hmm. effort, philanthropy, we might call it. Who, who knows what we call it now? Development. All right, page 13. A most striking incongruity, at once apparent, is the difference between the emotional kindness with which relief is given by one poor neighbor to another poor neighbor and the guarded care with which relief is given by a charity visitor to charity recipient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a period before there's really professionalized social work as a as an occupation, um, or any kinds of public health or public whatever. Right. This Jane Adams is in in many ways Jane Adams is the the mother of those professions. Right. Um, truly, if you went on to get a master's in social work, you'd read the shit out of Jane Adams. Right. Um, and so when she's talking about this, this is usually these charitable societies were usually societies primarily composed of women. Right. And it was voluntary efforts. It was usually for women in the middle classes who had no occupations because they were really too high status to be teachers or nurses, right? That was for mm-hmm, lower status mm-hmm. women to do because you didn't work if you were of high right. status. If you were a woman of high status, you didn't work because that would indicate you right. were of lower status. Right. Um, but of course... You know, people have ambition and interest and, like, try to make meaning out of their lives. And not everyone finds just being uh, an appendage to a husband a very meaningful life. And so women did things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that middle-class women did was organized efforts, uh, you know, semi-professionalized. I mean, they 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 were unpaid, so they were technically amateurs, but, like... These were relatively well-organized efforts of doing kind of poor relief in the cities, right? Right. Okay. Yep. And what she's noticed here is they're not very good at it in some ways. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, or it's like a very different relationship. Like, they might be giving this stuff mm-hmm. just as well or even better. I mean, she doesn't make any claims about that, but that the relational component is very different between neighbors. Like, mm-hmm. when this is a neighborly activity versus between... The charity visitor who may... So there's no identification there with the common lot between... There's no identification between the charity visitor I mean, and it seems like it's, it's actually not... As she describes it as guarded care, right? So that, like, there is actually an effort to put up a barrier mm-hmm. between yourself and, you know, the people that you are... Your charity recipients. Your charity recipients, Yes. So what Adams is criticizing here throughout is what the kind of conceptualization she puts around her observations is that charitable visitors, charitable visitors, excuse me, in this period are operating from older assumptions and they haven't updated, they haven't updated their way of thinking to this new industrial city life. And they're still thinking along older lines where they feel like they have to exhort the poor to like, I don't know what, you know, be more Mm -hmm. industrious and thrifty and Mm -hmm. all of these sort of Republican, small r, Republican values that were um, more associated with like the semi-rural life of the American frontier. Mm -hmm. And so all of these charitable visitors are going in delivering useless values in a sense, <laughs> right? And not That's only, and they're delivering useless values that don't make any sense in an industrial period. And in, our, in, a, in a way, r- part of what she is, I think, pointing out there about this like kindness that is happening among neighbors is that the neighbors are identifying with one another. Right, certainly, yeah. And that the neighbors in the industrial city are the ones who actually have a more relevant set of values for the world that we live in and these old stuffy charitable visitors in their corsets, you know, mm-hmm. are bringing some old shit and mm-hmm. they need to update, you know, they need mm-hmm. to follow the lead of the industrial masses. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So page 31. All right. We skipped a lot. It's more examples in this passage. We've just seen more examples of uh, more and more detail added to the to the, um, the kind charitable of a, the charitable visitor. visitors. Yeah. Okay. So just when our affection becomes large enough to care for the unworthy among the poor, as we would care for the unworthy among our own kin, is certainly a perplexing question. To say that it should never be so is a comment upon our democratic relations to them which few of us would be willing to make. What, do you get that quote at all? Well, so I think that, I mean, the first part seems to just be saying something that is clear, which is that, like, um, well, it starts with the assumption that we tend to have a certain level of acceptance for the unworthy that are our kin, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we could even say those closest to mm-hmm. us, to even if, to us, even if not related. Um, but that when that feeling uh, would be extended to those who we don't know, and especially those we see as lower class, right? It's unclear what makes that. Mm-hmm. Seems to me that Adams is saying it's unclear to her what makes that leap happen, right? right. Where you move from being able to see your family in that way from being able to see someone who you see as maybe beneath you in some way in that same way. Do you know, do you know, have we talked about this, how in this passage she seems to be like subtweeting her stepmother? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So, so her, ste- <laughs> so her stepmother, um, uh, her Jane Adams's mother died when she was quite young and her father remarried and she and her stepmother did not get along. Um, you know, Tale as old as time. And her stepmother had a son from a previous marriage herself. And her stepmother really wanted Jane Addams to take care of (laughs) this kind of layabout, invalid, neurasthenic stepbrother. Okay. And was furious that Jane Addams had, like, you know, wanted to have this life that was outside of the family claim. Sure. Right? So when she's, like, taking care of unworthy poor people is no different than taking care of unworthy family members. She has in mind a very specific set of relationships and demands that have been placed on her specifically in person. From her own family. So this is not, I mean, of course she's not like, I mean, whatever. She's drawing on her own experience here. And that's exactly what she's saying is like, uh, what's the difference between me moving to Chicago and taking care of people who live there versus taking care of your stupid layabout son? (laughs) I hate you both. Yeah, and then the second sentence, I I find it a little bit hard to parse other than that it's clear that this is about our democratic relations, right? That I would take the next part to be saying that it is more, it is a more democratic orientation to be able to have affection become large enough to care for the unworthy that we don't know or that we yes. see beneath us. That yes, that is that's, like part of a democratic that's ethos, part of a, exactly. a democratic orientation. Is um, not privileging your kin. Right. Right. And not saying that your tribe is better is and better and deserves more of, of your yeah. energy. Right. It's really expanding whose claims you respond to. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous shit, though. Right. Mm-hmm, I sure. mean, dangerous shit. If you think about like what the primary organizing components of society have been historically. Yeah. Right. Kinship is a pretty big one. Absolutely. Well, and it's like, I mean, it's religious communities, right? Of of the kind of sub organizations of society. And what Adams is like, blow them all up. Blow them all up. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we'll get, I think, I mean, we'll get some of these later feminists too that talk more about this. But I mean, it is an interesting, I mean, it's a challenge to the family. It's probably. And Amanda Crocker told us all about the family as this central unit. Okay, sorry. And I mean, and then like this, yeah, like connects a lot. But in any case, it's also a hard thing, I think, for many people to actually cultivate that democratic mm-hmm, ethos, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, the sort of, like, feelings that you may have for, say, for our college students, for siblings, or, right, for people in our age category, your kids, right? It's, mm-hmm. like, just, a, like, a radically different feeling than you have for, like, other people, like, right? Yes. And yeah. so it is, like, interesting to sort of think about you know, that it is a, it does require some kind of push um, to sort of think about that democratic ethos. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. The I mean, I also sort of think about it as that. So we've been watching. Um, Simone and I have been watching all these um, bird documentaries, mm-hmm. and so we just finished this one about bird parents, mm-hmm. and just the variation. I mean, it sort of is like in the so far as we often, I think, want to tell these stories about this being natural, right? This is like our natural, these sort of instincts and whatever. And like the variation in parenting among birds <laughs> is just yep. like so wild, like the like degree to which, you know, some of the birds are like never see their right. young and some of the birds fucking kill their young. <laughs> like right. all Others the way raise. to like super devoted you know, so when one species is like the dad is like the only like right, and wasn't there? I was watching a little bit of this over your shoulder where there's one like species of ducks that raises all kinds of other people's yeah, yeah. other ducks. Yeah, it takes all the ducks. It like chases out all the other grown-ups and then gets all the ducklings. Right, <laughs> so it's like got like thirty ducklings. Right, it's like a socialist duck. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> or Israeli. It's like a it's a kibbutz, it's kibbutz duck kibbutz. Right. Um. Anyway, whatever. So I mean, I guess that is all to say that insofar as I feel like, I've also been reading all this stuff about gay marriage in Latin America, right? And all these yeah. like ways that we sort of have constructed the family as this natural unit, which of course is easy to imagine given the feelings that we have often mm-hmm. towards some of our family relations. But, you know, if we like pull it apart, we can see that there's, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. right? That like maybe you are pushing past some of your own feelings to cultivate a democratic ethos, but maybe it's also less natural as I think... Given we were just a story about the step yeah. family, right? That maybe it's even, you know, maybe we should even question how natural oh, absolutely. some of those things are. Absolutely. All right, let's keep moving. All I right. think this next one is a long one. It is a long it's one. It's kind of a funny, I think it's a quote that's like, I, I think uh, uh, oh, after you read it, I want you to sort of like tell me what you imagine when you read it. Kay. Like v- visually, because I feel like it's kind of visually evocative to, okay. me, to okay. me personally. But okay. I mean, I spent a lot of time reading Adams yeah, over, my, spent a lot of time over my reading life. Adam. All right. All right. The young, this is from page 33. The young woman who has succeeded in expressing her social compunction through charitable effort finds that the wider social activity and the contact with larger experience not only increases her sense of social obligation, but at the same time recasts her social ideals. She is chagrined to discover that in the actual task of reducing her social scruples to action, her humble beneficiaries are far in advance of her, not in charity or singleness of purpose, but in self-sacrificing action. She reaches the old-time virtue of humility by a social process, not in the old way, as the man who sits by the side of the road and puts dust upon his head, calling himself a contrite sinner. But she gets the dust upon her head because she has stumbled and fallen in the road through her efforts to push forward the mass, to march with her fellows. She has socialized her virtues not only through a social aim, but by a social process. Yeah, what does it say about me that I find that visually evocative? <laughs> you just like imagining that guy with the dust on his head and then <laughs> stumbling and falling. As you, were reading, like, as you were reading, I was like, man, this is like the most abstract thing. Yeah. It's <laughs> so funny. Get to that part. That's so funny. I mean, I thought that initially that where it was going to go was actually not where it went. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it was because you told me I was supposed to imagine it in pictures. Yeah, right. right so, like, okay. at first I was, like, imagining this, like, kind of prim and pro- proper mm-hmm. social charity yeah. Or yeah, I think lady, that's right. I think right? that's right. I think you're imagining um, right. But that, like... She's out there on the throng in common road. But her humble beneficiaries are far in advance of her in their self-sacrificing action. Um, which, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that, like, if people have been in community with people that have very little, they may have experienced the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. right, where, mm-hmm. um, where... Money is given freely. People are kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, even the poorest of people mm-hmm. can still be kind. Mm-hmm. And still share what little they have with others, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's money or not. Like, mm-hmm. um, I lived in rural Honduras for two years, and it wasn't much money being freely. <laughs> there wasn't much money, period, right? But a meal and a coffee, and mm-hmm. maybe even a special, you know, drink mm-hmm. purchased at the store or something like that. Um, so you know, it's a little bit of that, right? Sort of realizing that you don't, like, middle class people don't have the monopoly on. Good values. Good values, kindness, sharing, right? That, like, this isn't 
actually and maybe just not for them. only do not have the maybe not only do not have a monopoly on those, but as she puts out there, right, like are kind of far behind. Right, right, and I mean, in a certain sense, where it's like you're like, well, like the 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 social charity giver has to recognize that like it's not a strain for her to give these mm-hmm. like her you know the like coats or whatever <laughs> i don't know what they're what mm-hmm. we imagine them to be distributing but food baskets or something right but she's not like taking away from her own family's food to like share the food with these people like she has mm-hmm. excess and so she's sharing excess whereas right in so far as these the people she is um, her humble beneficiaries are far in advance of her it's like well they actually are willing to sort of share even in the face of such scarcity Right. right, material scarcity, mm-hmm. but you know, um, and then you get this awesome part about the man who's putting dust on himself. So sackcloth and ashes is like yeah, the yeah. sort of Catholic, yeah, sort of. Uh, so phrase. I get that little right. penitence kind of thing, mm-hmm. but she gets the dust not because she's like performing a ritual exactly, uh, uh-huh. right, but because she has stumbled and fallen in the road through her efforts, which is I think that you know moment where, um. Where she realizes. Yes. Right. Right. If she's attentive at all to what's happening around her, she recognizes that whatever, you know, uh, whatever it is that she's supposedly offering to these charitable recipients. Sort of contemporary language. Exactly. Right. right? That's where the humility comes from. And this sort of sense in which, like, this part. She has checked her privilege. Where she's, she's, socializes her virtues so if we think about like she's developed her virtues and sort of shared her virtues not through some sort of good aim as you might think the penitent has but Mm -hmm. through actually engaging in a social process so i think it's a different way also if we're thinking if the first if we just took a little bit of a stab at the family right as maybe not Mm -hmm. the only unit we should think uh, about or maybe even not the prime unit or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. But here we can also think that religion, where religion is seen as that you get virtue by like thinking and praying and right that like through this like kind of Mm -hmm. like through ritual, right? This is a very different process where virtue comes through action, Mm -hmm. um, which is I think in a certain regard calling out, she seems to me to be in this passage calling out the church a little bit. Yeah, for a kind of arid faith rather than one that's actively engaged. Yeah, like, yeah, so what? You put dust on your head in the road. (laughs) Who cares, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit, I think, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You got it. You got it. So that's the the passage on charitable effort. I think it's it's an intriguing... I'm sorry, the chapter. Did I say passage? I meant chapter. chapter. I think it's a, I think it's an intriguing chapter and it, to me, sets out another, it, it, it illustrates very well that second quote that I had from the introduction about identification with the common lot and really um, and, and really shows that in the end what Adams suggests is that reimagining our relationship with poor people mm-hmm. on democratic lines means really releasing ourselves from a lot of old habits of thinking about what charity means or what like what we actually owe to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think when we when we get into this chapter on the family, she'll help us sort of understand how we can reconfigure our thinking about how we how we relate to our, you know, uh, t- to everyone in society. If that makes All sense. Right. Sure. Um, these next two quotes are small. They look kind of like they, they go together, together. If they're from 37 yeah, and 38. They, do. they look they like go, they belong together. They definitely belong together. Um, all right. So from page 37, she says, Our democracy is making inroads upon the family, the oldest of human institutions, and a claim is being advanced, which in a certain sense is larger than the family claim. Mm-hmm. And she goes on on page 38 to say, the family in its entirety must be carried out into the larger life. There you go. Its various members together must recognize and acknowledge the validity of the social obligation. Right. 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 So she's not saying, she's not saying as I think some later, because we're there reading Shul in the Fire Mm -hmm, mm Soon. So I mean, I think you get some radical claims about the destruction of the family, Mm -hmm. which this is not making, right? It's saying that the whole family should be carried into public life and all recognize and acknowledge 
a social obligation. Yeah, I think that she's saying, I think she's actually saying a, a few different things here. One of the things that she's saying in this chapter is she's saying that um, one of the claims she's making throughout this chapter is that women should be allowed to do f- to, to do shit Things, in the yes, world. Right, obviously. Right? Yeah. That's one of the things that she's saying. Right. And she says so in some ways very directly. But she's saying far more than that because she's not saying it because of... Part of what's, I think, really interesting about Adams is that she's not saying it because... Unlike Crocker, who's like, women and men are equal, and so women should be able mm-hmm. to use their powers. Adams says, like, we're all called forward by something called democracy. Right. Right? Like, it's not because women and men are equal that we have equal claim to public life. Right. It's because of something larger than women or men. Right. It's this value system that we think of as democracy that draws everyone into social obligations, men or women or well, whomever. And I mean, presumably, I don't know whether she would then include children in this, but I mean, like, you would, I would take that to be, like, the family in its entirety must be carried out into larger life. She's not just saying men and women, right? right. You would say it differently if you... Right, mothers Which, and fathers, right? right. This is the entire thing. This is the entirety of the family carried out into the larger life, right? That, like, everybody is part of this democratic sphere. We all are part of. And what that also means, the kind of secondary claim, in addition to this thing about how w- one of the themes that unifies this chapter is about women having more responsibilities to society, mm-hmm. is also just that, that the that the claim that we feel to our family, like what what is it that our family is serving ought to be much larger than just the family itself, right? Mm-hmm. That like that when she thinks about it, like the family being kind of pulled by or pulled into all of these other forms of social obligation, it's partly about like socializing what we think about as the family. Right. 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 Expanding who is really our kin. In a way. See, I actually thought she was constraining that a little bit here. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was the claim that she was making earlier. And here I feel like it's a little bit uh, hedged isn't the right word that I'm looking mm-hmm. for. But like where it's like, yeah, you you're you can have your family. Like, mm-hmm. but a claim is being advanced that's larger than the family. And so then you carry your family into that larger life. Which is, I feel like, different than being like, blow up the family, your family is large. It's like, yeah, right. there's claims, like, you can go forth as a unit with your family. But you exist in this larger network of obligations. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, like, in some ways, I, f- I feel like it allows space for preservation of the family mm-hmm. um, as one of the oldest of human institutions, mm-hmm. right? I feel like it's not a burn it all down. No, no, Jane Adams no. is not a burn it no, all down I mean, type. Pragmatist, but all right. Anyway, indeed. All right, page forty-two. During this so-called preparation college, uh, her faculties, presumably the person that is the college student, the woman. Correct. Her faculties have been trained solely for accumulation, and mm-hmm. she has learned to utterly distrust the finer impulses of her nature, which would naturally have connected her with human interests outside of her family in her own immediate social circle. All through school and college, the young soul dreamed of self-sacrifice, of succor to to the helplessness and of tenderness to the unfortunate. We persistently distrust these desires, and unless they follow well-defined lines, we repress them with every device of convention and caution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm, That's weird. Mm, What's weird about it? Well... I mean, if we're going to, like, go back to, I feel like in some of these early ones where people were, like, relying on, like, old sort of, like, social contract theorists and these people. I mean, I feel like this is, like, the opposite in some sense of these, like, pictures of man, like, of humans, Mm -hmm. but man, as this, like, rational, like, Mm -hmm. utility maximizing you know, I feel like we definitely have this story of human nature as this, like, you're just out to get what you need to survive or to, you know, you're just trying to accumulate. Like, that. that is, like, often put forward as the natural, mm-hmm. right? And that this is, like, flipping that on its head. 
Well, thing. if they read, if they took one seventeen and read Rousseau on the origin of inequality, I guess the that's second discourse, true. I you guess see Rousseau a different version of natural pity and natural right. sort of uh, compassion at the sight of suffering of others. Right. So it's not like a Hobbes. It's more like a Rousseau. There you go. There you go. Okay. But there is still. a lot still going on in there. Um, I think one of the things that that to our modern ears might strike us as a little, I don't know, um, off-putting there is about how this, the idea of like the self-sacrifice, um, unless it's on well-defined lines, gets kind of, you know, uh, uh, beaten out of, of young women at college. Do you see where I'm looking? Yeah. And I think to sort of modern ears, that might sound as though she's kind of like still beholden to a sort of retrograde view of gender relations, right? That like sure. there's a kind of maternal, there's still like that, that right. women essentially become unwomanly by going to college, right? There's one right. way of reading that. Right, right, right. Um, and what I want to emphasize is that we push on the part there about the well-defined lines is that part of what is happening in this chapter. So this time, women could become like medical, like middle class women could become medical missionaries. Right, right, right. That right. would be like, okay, that right. would probably be the most specialized kind of right. path for for um, middle class women without losing some kind of social status. Right. And um, these are the kind of well-defined lines that she's trying to push against. I mean, is it... To, like, situate this, like, okay, this idea that, like, women that are going to college mm -hmm. have spent their days dreaming of self-sacrifice mm -hmm. is, like, I guess I'm... Is that true? Is that what you're asking? E well, I mean... Are they, though? Are right. they, though? Are they, though, a little bit? But, like, some are, right? Who is she imagining, right? Because, like, okay, so we have clearly, like you said, that this these are, these are the, like more upper class, like mm -hmm. middle upper class women that are not the ones that are like going to be teachers and nurses, right? So they're not gonna have, okay, so first these are not washerwomen, right? Like nope. second, these are not even, right, our nurses and teachers. And so they're not like- They're going to normal school, they're going to college. Right, they're going to college or nursing school, which uh, who knows what that was then. Normal school was only teachers. Right, right, but what I mean is that also they're, they are women who are being educated to enter like a pretty right, but I think that's bourgeois. what I'm asking is like who so I mean, is this sense of like this story about like the young soul dreamed of self sacrifice? She's talking about herself here. I mean Right, obviously she's talking about her, herself. But I think I wanted to know how common that particular like is every middle class, like upper middle class woman intellectual like this is the only so they are often, so in Adams's world, which is sort of, it's, it's the world of Abraham Lincoln. It's kind of rural Illinois. Mm -hmm. Her father was, you know, correspondent, one of his prized possessions was a letter from Abraham Lincoln, okay. right? So this is like some real 19th century shit. So in her world of kind of frontier Illinois, uh, women of her class went to Rockford Seminary, which was okay. like a, a women's, so... Women who had some uppity ideas, uh -huh. right, would go, like, in the middle class, if you could afford to educate your daughters mm -hmm. in a kind of liberal way, right. your, your first round was to try and keep them in the church. Right. Right? Right. So in order to keep the family claims strong, right. you keep them in an educational environment that continues to emphasize patriarchal right. organization yes. of society. Yes. Right? So they're... So they are, so the first round of education really is this kind of um, very religious education that is, I think, where these ideas about the young soul dreaming of self-sacrifice right. come from, is that right. so many of these these sort of bourgeois women in the were 19th century in were being Some special, kind of women's seminary Exactly, kind of and maybe... Like, but they weren't supposed to be, because presumably they wouldn't have been allowed to be pre preachers or... Oh, God, no. So they were just being like educated in a good Christian values letters, letters and good Christian values or something kind of. You got it. You got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were writing on, you know, I mean, her, 
I think her thesis was maybe on John Ruskin, the Victorian writer, and right. bread labor. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, yeah, they... Okay. I mean, that kind of makes sense. This, again, though, is like the sort of frontier world. I mean, if you're talking about back east, right, there would have been a different, different world. Right, yeah, because some of those women would have been just, like trying to burst in to be scientists and like... Yeah, that's why, uh, that's why upstate know. New York is the place where you have a lot more hardcore earlier women's rights activists, right? Is that right. the East is just a little bit... The East is... is, is um, it's, it's more advanced along these lines educationally. Right, right. it's more urban. It's, it's more cosmopolitan. Already, right? Earlier, so she's right, very yeah. much... I mean, I think we need okay. to consider thinking about Adams. We need to also just be remembering that she's right. sort of on the frontier right. as well, which is an important component of American experience. It's not all the East Coast. Right, right. All right, page 44. There is no doubt that most of the misunderstandings of life are due to partial intelligence because our experiences have been so unlike that, oh, because our experience have been so unlike that we cannot comprehend each other. The old difficulties incident to the clash of two codes of moral must drop away as the experiences of various members of the family become larger and more identical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first part of that about the there can be no doubt that our misunderstandings are from partial experience is i think part of where her it's where her thought her democratic thought connects to some of these more um these more abstract ideas that are circulating in philosophy at the time this is where she's like really expressing i think some really strong pragmatist impulses uh-huh, right that uh-huh. like that we are that our ideas are, in a sense, constrained by how, like, our the positionality, that, as we would say, as we would say today. Yeah. But in pragmatist terms, like yeah. the experiences that we are able to take take in yeah. determine kind of our values. And so, so what it would mean to have the right values to govern a diverse country, like you can't do it from parochial values, right? right. Like, sure. So this is how pragmatism. So if pragmatism as a is a set of ideas is about like. Um, you know, fundamentally is about the, uh, I guess the best way to, to put it is about kind of how our knowledge is situated mm-hmm. and partial. Yeah. Then the democratic uh, inference that follows is that in order to have ideas that can hold together and govern a diverse country, those need to be expanded and mm-hmm. include all of those different s- sort of standpoints. Right. All right. Should I keep moving? Sure, sure. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. All right. Page 101. All right. This, this is, is now we're into local on, yeah. politics, right? So the political reform is all engaged with thinking about local politics. And so she's really, again, very much involved in the city, very much involved in 19th century urban political life, bosses, the whole political right. machines and everything like that. So that's the important kind of boss tweed sort of context that you right. get here. Right. Okay. Okay. So from page 101, the successful candidate in poor urban neighborhoods must be a good man according to the morality of his constituents. He must not attempt to hold up too high a standard, nor must he attempt to reform or change their standards. His safety lies in doing a large scale the good deeds, which his constituencies barely able to do only on a small scale. If he believes what they believe and does what they're all cherishing a secret ambition to do, he will dazzle them by his success and win their confidence. Right. So 19th century middle class people were terrified and upset by all of this like populist, Ah, personalistic, clientelistic, um, urban machine politics where the alderman gives out turkeys at Christmas time Mm in order to secure votes. And Adams is like, well, I mean, look at it from the point of view of a neighbor in that neighborhood. And she says, well, here's a guy who's generous, right? The alderman is someone who's giving out turkeys at Thanksgiving. Right, right, right. He's a generous person. Right. The alderman is helping people get jobs. Like, I would help my brother get a job. Right, right. Right? And so she's looking at the world of right. urban politics in the 19th century, which is largely clientelistic, patronage-based. And she's, unlike other members of her class, is kind of like civil service reform. Like, what are you... I mean, 
let's let's take a look at what's going on here and uh-huh. let's take a look at the at the point of view of people who might live in that neighborhood and see why precisely this is an appealing you know way of of uh, governing yourself gotcha okay so that's that's what this is all about right okay. and, and her argument is like the aldermen are truly of the people right like right. the machine the person who runs the machine and operates the machine is really represents the values back to the constituents. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right? it seems like that's this reflection, exactly. right, very much. Exactly. This. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can read this political reform. It was it was interesting rereading it in the age of, like, larger-scale populist movements. It was, right. It was, it, it, there's ways that we could push back against this, but for now, let's, let's see if we can get some, all right. some more stuff going. Page 112. We are all involved in this political corruption, Ooh. and as members of the community stand indicted, oh, we and as members of the community stand indicted, this is the penalty of dem- of a democracy that we are bound to move forward or retrograde together. None of us can stand aside. Our feet are mired in the same soil, and our lungs breathe the same air. Right, and so this gets. She's going to expand upon exactly what she means here, but but she returns again to this whole idea of like, well. We live in a democracy, and that means that we're all part of this together. Right. Right? And we have to, what she says to other middle class people, like, we have to own our part in this. And we have to do our best to identify with the common lot and see where maybe we operate from the same sets of values that we're actually castigating people beneath us in the status ladder Right. For operating on, right. And so the next quote, I th- think, if I've if I've put it in the right order, the next quote should describe that a little bit. All right. So on page one fifteen, all parts of the community are bound together in ethical development. If the so-called more enlightened members accept corporate gifts from the man who buys up the council, and the and the so-called less enlightened members accept individual gifts from the man who sells out the council, we surely must take our punishment together. There is the difference, of course, that in the first case we act collectively, and in the second case individually. But is the punishment which follows the first any lighter or less far-reaching in its consequences than the more obvious one which follows the second? Right. So the front end of that quote, right, is, I mean, we benefit from the people who are buying the votes. Man, I just... Right. Oh, but it's also, I felt like, yeah, I guess that's right. Is that what she's talking about? She's like, we benefit from the large corporate interests that buy up the council votes. See, I was thinking that she was, oh, Tell yeah, I guess that's right. It. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. If the so-called more enlightened members accept corporate gifts from the man who buys up the council. Buys up the council. So we've got our Carnegie Library, right? Right, that's what I was thinking, right? Because she's not saying that we benefit... She's not saying the, the middle class benefits from the fact that that guy buys the turkeys. What she's saying is, like, we're also actually getting handouts. Our handouts just look very different than the... You got it. Yeah, so that's funny because it. I was just... Pharisee has a new book out. Oh, yeah? Um, with um, Chris Ellis. Is that his co-author that does the public opinion stuff? Uh-huh. At Bucknell? Probably. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, whatever. So they have a new book out. So I was just looking at it, and it, they, it's all this public opinion stuff that's about, like, how middle class people will, um, and again, not that, like, top 1%, but, like, the sort of the stratum below that, will often say, like, oh, we need to simplify the tax code and, like, this stuff, we you know, clean it up, like, get rid of the loopholes. But then when you actually start asking about the policies... Don't touch my mortgage interest deduction. Don't touch my five, 401k. Don't touch my 529, right? That there's this, like, whole bunch of, like... Keep your government hands off my 529. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's a sort of, but it made me think of this, right? Mm-hmm. It's like those are the handouts that are coming in a court. Right? We're getting it through the tax code. Bingo. Versus the turkeys at Christmas. So, like, nobody's giving us turkeys. They're giving us, like, huge tax write-offs on, you know, whatever, our retirement accounts or something like that. So that more of our money goes into the stock market so that this is what corp- this is what the finance sector wants, right? Right. There's right. more of our money being directed into... And then the, the councilmen can use that to buy the turkeys. <laughs> you know, whatever. But yeah. It, um, right? And so... Yeah. So yeah, this is this is Adams. This is Adams. Right. And, that, and that we all share the same consequences. Right. Right? Like the consequences of us being wrapped up in a tax code that favors people who own property. 
right. is really no different. It's actually the same set of consequences, the same problem as right. the world of corruption that we might call the lower stratum of of society where it's like bots are, I'm sorry, votes are bought right. and paid for at the saloon or wherever the right. fuck they're doing yeah, this yeah, in the yeah, 19th yeah. century. Right. And then it's all the same, it's the same. Right. Like it's a our, seamless, our votes are being bought just in, in a, a different, different way. way. Yeah. You got it. You got it. And that's yeah. what Adam said. And it, again, it goes back to this conception of democracy that is like, that you can't, you you are making, you're making an actual empirical mistake in a democratic society if you choose to segment us away right. from one another. Well, and it's an interesting thing because when I think about this and like you, partly because you preface this a little bit with like if we think about our contemporary populist moment, um, is like there's a difference here than there is in more universalistic welfare states, right? Because there the benefits are across the board. So like mm -hmm. insofar as like the benefits are being, like insofar as loyalty is always bought to some degree, mm -hmm. right? That like part of legitimacy is always related to in part economic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuff. But it isn't segmented in this way of so like turkeys for you, five oh or 401ks, 401ks for, for you. Like, right. you know, like this is and whatever crazy millionaire tax shit mm -hmm. that I don't even understand. Right. So like, you know, yeah. Right, that this is like a very it's like I feel like in some ways the like you could imagine Adams getting on board with a more universalistic well, read the kind next of policy. One. I think I think it's the next one. Read the next one. All right. Page one sixteen. A reformer who really knew the people and their great human needs, who believed that it was the business of government to serve them, and who further recognized the educative power of a sense of responsibility, would possess a clue mm -hmm. by yeah, which... Yeah, the, the old spelling. Okay, a clue by which he might analyze the situation. He would find out what needs, which the alderman supplies, are legitimate ones, which the city itself could undertake. <laughs> there yeah. you go. So, I mean, she does gesture toward this kind of universalism. Yeah, in right? counter-distinction to those which pander to the lower instincts Bingo. of the constituency. Right. So, so yeah. that's exactly what she says, right? Right. Exactly like, what she says. That we should have universal policy and not these, like, yeah. Individualistic, you know, network yeah. patronage-based. Right. And I mean, in some sense, I guess that the 401k example is still... Like it is still bureaucratized. Quasi, quasi universalistic. It's not universalistic, no. I wouldn't say, but it's it is bureaucratized in this way that she's talking about here, right? right? So that like we're not getting that like it's not like some guy knocked on our door and was like, Vote for me. <laughs> you can have a four oh one K right. I mean right, it's right, like right. but I think that if you take her thing on the corporate when she says, like, we're also to blame, even if it's in this corporate way, then I, I understand that as mm -hmm. kind of also calling out the four oh one K. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad that you identified that, and you can see this kind of early. It's it's not fully developed because, of course, she's talking at the local level. Right. In other of her, um, when she, some of her more pacifist writing, like, I, or excuse me, some of the writing that comes out of her, like, thinking about global politics and newer ideals of peace, which comes out in 1907, you get a little bit more of these gestures towards universalism. Right. Um, because she's talking about like international politics right, rather right. than hyper local, local politics yeah, yeah, here, yeah. but you're right that that's that's where you can kind of see the sort of um, uh, impulse toward this yeah. universalism. Yeah, yeah. Which which she says is just like that's essential in democracy. Right. Right. Like that's the only kind of social policy that's appropriate to democracy. Right. Because it's all one community. Right. 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 It's we're not, and that, that what we have currently is a whole set of crazy tribal, right. basically tribal, right. Right. sort of networks of benefit dis, distribution of benefits right. in a society that is now increasingly obviously interconnected. Right. All right. All right. I think Wait. this is our last one. Mm, there's two more. Two more. Page one seventeen. If we believe that the individual struggle for life may widen into a struggle for the lives of all, surely the, de the demand of an individual for decency and comfort for a chance to work and obtain the fullness of life may be widened until it gradually embraces all the members of the community and rises into a sense of the common weel. Sure. Another a nice Adams. Another, you know, you know beautiful passage of mm -hmm. Adams and universalism. Why don't you go ahead and just read the next one? Because I think that 117 kind of puts in a, in a little bit more rhetorical sense of the first All right, one. so 119 to 120. When the entire moral energy of an individual goes into the cultivation of personal integrity, we all know how unlovely the result may become. 
This okay, is wait, a, this wait, is really good. You the cultivation. Oh, personal integrity. Okay, we all know how lovely the unlovely the result may become. The character is upright, of course, but too coded over with the result of its own endeavor to be attractive. In this effort toward a higher morality in our social relations, we must demand that the individual shall be willing to lose the sense of personal achievement and shall be content to realize his activity only in connection with the activity of the many. Yeah. I mean, she's a little... Um, it sounds she could have been a Swede. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, they have this crazy thing. I'm not going to be able to reproduce it's this at all. It's going to be like the worst story. Um, oh, good. But yeah, <laughs> but apparently there's some. It maybe if any of your students are Swedish family or whatever know anything about this. But John Stevens, one of my grad school professors, was always talking about this. That in Sweden there's like this basic, some sort of Swedish expression, which is like that you don't want to be the grass that's taller than the rest of the grass, mm -hmm. like that you want to be like the same as the grass. Um, but which is exactly this, it's like... This no, it's like, such a Midwestern, this is such a Midwestern Right, it's like this sense expression. of... This sense of like that you which shouldn't be... Which is where all the Swedes settled, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's like you shouldn't be. Apparently there was like some interviewers were like interviewing some of the like Swedish Olympic athletes who were like winners in whatever mm -hmm. the, you know, probably some of the winter sports Sailed or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like they were still kind of like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like, of course, this is compatible with the grass thing. <laughs> like, but mm -hmm. it would be like they would be, I don't know. There's apparently some very funny interview with these guys that were like. Olympic if you find winners. it, let me know. Not uh, you personally. Yeah, not some you, of the Heather, students. Yeah. Some of the students. Anyway, whatever. But it made me think of this a little bit, right? Which is just that sense that like you might be in it to do your best but like the doing your best like the per sense of personal achievement shouldn't be what that is about right like you can exactly. do your best for the connection with the many but like doing your best just for you is like you know whatever what does she say that you're too coded too coded over with the result of your own endeavor to be attractive, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we've all probably hung out with people like that before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a higher value for your own personal. You exactly. can excel, but, like, you shouldn't excel just for you. For your own person to show yeah. off your own personal achievement and accumulation. So yeah. I think this is nice because it, it reprises some themes that came through in the charitable effort and the familial one about, like, the difference between an ethic that is aimed at personal accumulation, right? She talks about education as accumulation, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, being oriented toward accumulation. And here she has the same kind of sensibility and and again is talking about that this is really inappropriate for right. a democratic, democratic way of yeah, life. Yeah. And a democratic way of life, again, is this thing about the calmed and, com thronged and, and calm common road. road. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's really ultimately uh, the key... I mean, I think that's the key to Adams is yeah. the thronged and common road. Um, I've been saying it for years. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, all right. So I look forward to our conversation on Adams. I know you guys are um, feeling a little bit fried by now, so I hope that you were able to enjoy. Um, I know this one This one had some beautiful passages, a little bit slog maybe, but um, overall I think it was a, a little bit of easier reading assignment than some of the others. So I will see you all on Wednesday or Friday.
Thank you. 